Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in and being a part of the way more and more people in our industry are getting the news and updates of what's going on in the industry. So we're honored and privileged to have you here. Killed the music so you can hear us a little bit better. But anyway, I want to say thank you so much. It is June 2nd, excuse me, June 6th. How time does fly. Um, we're already in June. I mean, I just struggled to understand how time is moving out at such a warp speed, but it's good to have you be with us. We say the the date and uh, of the program at the beginning of it because many of you are downloading and listening to this program after the fact. So you're listening to the June 6, 2016 program. Again, this broadcast was created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we are the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. Very happy about that. We appreciate you joining us. Today's hot topic is on senseless regulation. If you're in this industry, you know a little bit about that. And our guest today, Bill Isaacs, Bill Isaac, no S in there, sorry about that. Bill Isaac was the former chairman of the FDIC and published a book on this topic of senseless government intervention is really what it is. We're going to be talking more about the book and the proper title at the uh, the Hot Topic segment. Uh, I heard Bill speak recently at the American Bankers Association Real Estate Lending Conference. Bill was so compelling. Uh, Bill is senior me by a few years, and um, but is out and speaking and staying very active in uh, getting the voice his voice heard as he has a concern about where the country is heading as it relates to regulation, senseless involvement, senseless involvement of the regulation. You know what? I, I, I never forget Ronald Reagan's words. The nine scariest words in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Cracks me up when you read that. It's almost a little bit of what's going on in our a little bit. It's really going on in our industry, and Bill is going to, has got a book on it. We're going to be talking about that book, talking about how it relates to today and what's going on. He's been on the speaking circuit on national television, and it's a real honor to have Bill Isaac here with us. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI, the innovator of the RateStar program. We'll talk to Jim Jump in a little bit later in the program. Motivity Solutions with their leading business intelligence technology, providing real-time reporting, dashboard, and scorecards. Velma, the virtual electronic marketing assistant, can help you build stronger and more profitable relationships with the set-it-and-forget-it auto campaigns. Or you can create custom campaigns on the fly. Check out Velma at Velma. By the way, it stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. You can reach them at Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com, or call Brett Emler at 208-854-7909. Simplify, I'll appreciate them being a part of the sponsorship lineup. Uh, so good to have Nancy Alley on the program. We're looking to having her back or some other representatives from the company. Again, Simplify allows you to track changes, track changes, rescind and receive and validate documents. And all of this you can do in a real-time back-and-forth electronic communication exchange. Best of all, you have a complete audit trail of all the communications 
So when the topic today is on regulations, you're going to be talking, you have a, a defense. Simplifile does do a great job of helping you keep an audit trail of all the communications that communicate in a real-time way, collaboratively working with the settlement agents in a real-time chat and messaging format. Check them out at Simplifile, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E, at dot com, or call and speak with Nancy Alley at one 800 460 Five, seven. Again, special uh, thank you to D&H. They do a great job. I love doing radio programs from their booth, and we're going to be doing a lot more of those this year. Yeah, they are one of the top technology companies, not just here in the U.S., but in the world. They've been in the business for 140 years, employ over 5,500 people worldwide, supporting 8,000 clients in 70 countries, and their D&H Mortgage Bot product is an all-in-one solution for loan originations, and I encourage you to check it out and see them at www.mortgagebotbot.com. Call them also at 1-800-815-5592. Also, finally, the Mortgage Collaborative. We recently joined that. The radio program joined that. It's founded by the past five presidents of the NBA. The Mortgage Collaborative is a co-op that helps give its members the opportunity to meet and form meaningful relationships with top mortgage professionals and leaders in our industry. It is a relationship-driven business, and oftentimes who you know is as important as what you know. And you can learn more by going to mortgagecollaborative.com or call Rich Zerbinski at 440-552-0692. Powered, the power of the network. A special thank you goes out to Alice Alvey, Andy Shell, Joe Farr, Paul, and Malo, as well as Sam Garcia, for all their contributions to this program. Now let's get into um, the conferences. Not a lot of NBA conferences going on right at the moment. I'm speaking at this week on Friday morning at the New York State NBA Convention. It's in Albany, New York. And also I'll be speaking at the 44th second, uh, Annual CNBA Western Secondary Conference, July 25th through the 27th at the Western Hotel. Actually, I'm not speaking. I'm doing a radio program from ArchMI's booth. Come check it out. Anyway, look forward to having you and seeing you at one of these conferences. Joe Farr, let's get into what's going on in the hey, markets. Man, uh, the jobs report on Friday, whoo, that was an ugly. Yeah. I know you're going to be talking that about was. that. Yeah, but let's talk about today first because we were having a pretty quiet morning until Janet Yellen started talking. She's uh, been good for the market, though. Uh, MBS prices are now unchanged on the day but had been running about four, three to five, 30 seconds down from the end of day Friday. So she uh, she basically said, don't put too much emphasis on one report, you know, and that's what you're referring to, the jobs report. Uh, she said other, da- other data on the labor markets uh, have been pretty good. You know, claims have been low. Uh, job openings have been high. Quits have been high. Uh, consumer surveys have been uh, uh, pretty good. So uh, she's thinking the labor market really is not in dire straits, like uh, like what that jobs report on Friday would have indicated, but uh, uh, she also took out of her speech, uh, and again, this she just concluded her speech. She's taking some questions right now. Uh, that time frame, you know, in, in the uh, minutes they talked about in the coming months, or she has said in the coming months, and she's taken that reference out. So, uh, you know, you got to parse every every word. Uh, inflation, she talked about being low, but uh, due to temporary factors, meaning uh, strong dollar and lo- low oil prices. So all in all, the market seems to have liked it, but it wasn't uh, hugely market moving. Uh, interesting, the chances of a rate hike 
after that jobs report came out really did fall as uh, uh for for June anyway it fell from like 30% before the number to to just about no chance i mean is at like 3% right now uh and the chance for the uh, for a rate hike in July also fell from from about 50-50 to to um 1 in 3 so um it was the jobs report was a bit of a shock. Uh, it was good for the mortgage market though. Last week, um, MBS prices improved about 70 basis points. Uh, rates fell about eight basis points. Uh, and again, most that most improvement came on Friday, as everyone knows by now. Uh, uh, 38,000 jobs added, 160 were expected. Unemployment rate fell, but due to 450,000 people leaving the market. Uh, and so, you know, it really did have a negative effect on, uh, or a big effect on the Fed and, and the concern about whether or not a rate hike will occur or not. What yeah, else last week? Uh, reports. Yeah, let's talk about the, you know, yeah, keep on going because i got a bunch of things yeah. I want to add. Get to talk okay. on, uh, get, yeah, the, early in the week, uh, we got some good favorable movement due to the Brexit referendum poll uh, that came out. It indicated a, an increase in the expectations of, of people to vote to exit the European Union uh, in the UK uh, to the point where it was uh, uh, there were more people saying they would vote to exit than were saying they would vote to stay. So. You know that that whole situation causes concern for uh, not only the you know the economy there in Great Britain, but uh, the the European economy and even global the global economy. And the concern is that if they vote to exit, there's going to be a disruption in in the flow of uh, economic activity that's going to spread throughout Europe and, and the world, and and that we could see some slowdown in the global economic growth. And so that. That concern uh, has created a bit of a flight to safety in that uh, uh, safer assets like bonds, especially U.S. and government-guaranteed bonds like mortgage-backed securities, receive some favor and and prices improve somewhat. So uh, there are going to be more polls coming out, and each one that comes out, and as the the, tide turns from, from... staying or leaving it's it's going to be create some market moving events for us uh the economic data that came out last week dave uh, it was kind of mixed the uh, ism beat expectations while ism services fell short uh construction spending fell but in in april but march was revised higher by about the same amount consumer confidence fell in april uh, and was a little short of expectation core pce uh, match consensus uh, at, at two, per, two tenths for the month and 1.6 for the year. Um, and then the ECB met, made no policy changes, but pledged to stay very accommodative. And so this week we have very little data, but one of them is the JOLT report. And as I mentioned, uh, Janet Yellen was just talking about the JOLT report and how it's been fairly favorable, showing high quit rates, which is a sign of confidence and and some of the best job openings uh, last month's Jolts report was the best job openings in a very long time. So uh, we'll pay a lot of attention to that. That comes out on Wednesday, and then consumer sentiment comes out on Friday, and then the important treasury auctions, 10-year on uh, Wednesday, 30-year on Thursday. So that's 
that's it for the for the economic data next week this week yeah i think the most alarming part was the unemployment rate falling for i mean yes the jobs report but yeah was that an aberration is it a one-time thing we'll find out that the jolts report supports the data that we heard on um last friday if we if it supports it on wednesday so it'll be really interesting to see where that comes in there uh the uh the bigger one, I think, is really the unemployment rate and why it's fallen 4.7. I think there's right. some data I just received that that, that we now have 94,708,000 Americans not in the labor force. Now, our current population, if you go to this um, Worldometer's uh, website, if you're going to believe that, or other states seem to collaborate, we're right at 323,967,000. Uh, thousand nearly 324 million people in america that is almost one out of three people that have exited the the, that are in the u.s that are not a part of the labor force and then if you factor out all the you know the babies the young ones they can't even work that are included in the u.s population numbers it's much uglier than you really think and this is this is very alarming i think this this number needs more attention so we'll be seeing what that happens I would like to give it more attention because anything we can focus on there is going to keep interest rates low and keep the feds off on the trigger and pulling the trigger on for a rate hike. So I'm one of the ones that believes I don't think we are going to see a rate hike. I just don't think it's going to happen this year. If it does, the speakers I listen to are saying December at the earliest. So we'll, we shall see. But if they stay tuned. We shall. We shall we'll be able to tell us. No, you're so smart. You stay away from all predictions. I think that's brilliant. Folks, well, it's so good to have you with us, Joe, and give us an update on all that's going on. So appreciate it. And, folks, we're going to be right back after this brief break. Let's see if we got Paul Malo in the house. There's Paul. We got him dialed in, so we're going to go to him right after this break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline. Delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS. MBSQuoteLine.com. MBSQuoteLine.com. 646-716-4972. The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. Good to have you with us, everybody. And we have dialed in from the podcast, or into the podcast, uh, Paul Malo, who is, uh, are you the chief editor? What are I mean, anyway, he's the guy I consider to be the chief, <laughs> chief of all bottle news. Chief bottle washer. Chief bottle washer. But folks, uh, if you're not I? signed Managing up to read, editor is my official title. So John Bancroft is executive editor. So and yeah, Guy so. Scal is publisher, and we have a, a host of good people here. Um, you know the whole, it's the a, whole it's gang, a great Brandon team, and, and yeah, George and Carissa and um, and Thomas, who runs our CFPB newsletter and does a real bang up job. You guys were talking about regulation earlier. He's the guy who's got his nose to the grindstone, is always tracking that agency. So yeah, yeah. you guys so really do a great busy. job over there at IMF News. Folks, if you're not signed up to receive this newsletter, check it out at imfnews.com, and you can also go to the website. It'll get you all the same information, but you should get this delivered right into your email box. So let's talk about the, some of the headlines. I saw the first one that you covered. I love this news. This is one of our uh, clients that I've worked with. I've been there since the beginning. It's Ameripro's acquisition uh, by Guild. Talk about that. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the, this came up, and you know, I got a tip on it early this morning, and someone said this 
you know, the deal's going to be announced. Can't tell you who yet. I'm like, you know, please. You know, we'd heard Guild was out there talking to people a couple months back, uh, and now they apparently bought Ameripro um, in uh, Austin. They, they do $750 million a year in production. Uh, Guild's happy with the deal, it sounds like. We don't know what the purchase price was. That's not unusual. That happens a lot with these private companies. They never discuss uh, purchase price. 29 Branch Network, they also have offices in uh California, Colorado, Florida, Oklahoma, and Utah. And, you know, we've been here in the last 12 months, a lot of M&A this year. It hasn't really been a boom in M&A deals. Um, but, you know, I'm hearing there's more talk out there, and I'm, I'm also hearing there's two or three other deals that could uh, see the light of day this summer. So, um, you know, yep. stay tuned on that one. Guild has been around a long time. Uh, big, I know they made their name in FHA lending years ago. Uh, they usually had a, a lawsuit with the government, and they're trying to work through that. They claim, you know, they're going to fight it and all that. Uh, but, you know, a company uh, that's been around a long time that people know and respect, so we'll see what goes on there. Yep. Um, yeah, what else we got there? May was a solid month for lenders. We talked to a lot of non-banks. And, listen, uh, you know, April, uh, things started to pick up. May was even better, and a lot of the guys I've been talking to, um, like Paul Rozo at uh, Paramount Residential Mortgage in Corona, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for good things uh, the rest of the summer, and they're feeling optimistic. It's interesting. The, the non-bank guys I talk to tend to be optimistic and upbeat. The bank guys, not so much. Some of the big banks wouldn't talk to me about what's going on with their volume because they're publicly traded. Um, but you get the sense that, that that, you know, stealing of market share from uh, the banks to the non-banks is still going on and likely will continue. And, uh, you know, it's a non-bank world. Uh, it's, you know, Quicken is really huge. It'll be interesting to see uh, if and when they can catch Wells and eventually become the largest lender in the nation or whether Wells is going to, you know, hold the ground to be the number one producer. J.P. Morgan has made it uh, no secret that they're not so crazy about the mortgage business anymore. And uh, there's a few <laughs> yeah, others. So uh, it continues to be a good story and something we'll write about. Another thing that's out there is obviously TRID, the TRID framework, non-conforming securitizations, uh, what's an era, the due diligence firms, grading loans, A, B, C, D. Uh, Brandon Ivey's got a good update on what's going on there. It looks like uh, mortgages that would have been uh, received a C grading for compliance could receive a B under some new standards that's being drafted by the Structured Finance Industry Group, or everyone knows it as SysFig. Uh, I uh, strongly encourage anyone who's interested in that topic to look at Brandon's story on the website. Another one that popped up this morning, interesting story. Black Knight apparently has got Bank of America as a, a client for its servicing technology platform. Uh, that's a pretty big deal for Black Knight, at least. I think uh, B of A's platform is an in-house uh, apparatus, so uh, they're shifting over, and that's, a, uh, I guess, a coup of sorts for Black Knight, so that's good for them. Yeah. I think their share price has probably improved. I, I didn't look at it this morning, but that's what it probably will do. Uh, we crunched some number. FHA production um, was up in the first quarter compared to a year ago. FHA production not as much. Uh, I suggested everyone take a look at that story. We always crunch the numbers every quarter for the latest on that. And short takes, uh, just a, you know, a couple other things. I quoted a guy named Dave Licken in there uh, telling people that he helped uh, Chad Overhauser get in the business and start Ameripro. So you got a little link there, David. Ah, I, I hope, that I hope you know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we you should do that or not, little, I, but it's in there. I saw that. I'm, I'm on your website. And also we should put a note in there, and they've grown tremendously at the help of Andy Shell and, and the folks over at Mortgage Banking Solutions. So it was fun to be there at the beginning. I'll never forget that how we met Chad and 
And uh, how he, he says, I want to get in the mortgage business. And I said, okay, we can help you. So it was a, it's been a fun journey. But there's been a lot of people contributing to it. But it was fun to be there at the genesis of them and so many other companies. That's the joy we have as consultants. But, yeah, thanks for the mention on that. Appreciate that. Yeah, and that's, that's all the good stuff. It's all on the website. If they want to check it out, www.imfnews.com. Well, the key, this business is relationship. Now, the key to this business is relationship, and Paul Mollo has some of the best relationships. If you want to find out what's going on in this industry, check out Paul's website here. Well, it's not just Paul's. It's the whole Inside Mortgage Finance uh, news team, you know, all you guys doing. As they say in Texas, all you all doing a great job. You're doing, thank you so thank much you. for coming on and sharing the headlines here, my friend. Will do. Have a good week. I'll we'll talk to you soon. You too, friend. Let's head over to Alice Alvey. Good to have you here, Alice. Again, thank you so much for hosting the program when I was in New York. Uh, it was great to have you do that. I'm really appreciate, very appreciative of it and want to uh, just find out what's going on. You, we had a little bit of a break last week. I did the radio program by myself last week. It was I, We talked about a lot of things that you and I have worked on, Alice, So, but it's good to have you here with us. Give us an update. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, yes, so, you know, we want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk to uh, Bill Isaac. So I want to make sure I just cover some important things here for folks. We can have plenty of time there. The first thing is um, I think you all may have heard about the House bill for the transitional transitional licensing for the loan originators that passed on May 16th. Now, we all remember our process, right? That's just one step in a multi-step process. We'll see what happens. There has not been any movement on that um, as we've, of course, had some holiday time in there. But I wanted to give you a few tidbits on what that means. What is transitional licensing? So essentially it's the idea that if you're already, if you're in a bank or a licensed loan originator at a bank, you're really just registered, right? You're not actually licensed. And you want to be able to move to a non-bank where now you're going to have to go take take your training, um, go ahead and pass the test. You've got some steps. So the transitional licensing is gives you, you where you're able to make that move to a non-bank. You have 120 days then to secure your license, but there's a couple of little tricks in there. It also applies to when you're moving from state to state. So say you've got to move, you're only licensed in Michigan, and you want to move to Texas, and now you have to get a Texas license. So just a quick rule rundown is you have to make sure you haven't been denied, you don't have a felony, but you need it to be in the NMLS system for at least 12 months. So the transitional licensing isn't working for somebody who doesn't already have a history as a loan originator. You needed to have at least that one full year. And then while you're in this transition, you really still do have that you're fully liable. Nothing changes in terms of liability with an interim license. They made sure they picked up on that. And basically the bottom line is you need to do, if you're moving to another state, already applied in that state. So you've got your paperwork moving. So just a few steps to keep in line as we watch this move forward. We still probably have at least a year and a half. Um, NMLS is going to have to get their systems set up. Um, so it sounds kind of far away, to, but time can disappear quickly on us, as we know. Uh, so I wanted to give you those quick tidbits on what that actually means, and then, of course, make sure that you recognize the time frame uh, could still be quite a ways off. Uh, the only other proposed rule we're watching is that there's a proposed rule out there by FHA. Comments are due by July 18th, and it's the prioritization of the HECM lien above all others and then some other protection pieces. And buried in there are a few things we think are going to dramatically change this product. And it's going to make it less appealing for lenders to want to have this product. It could substantially reduce the volume of this. So um, you should take a look at it. One of the big things is that utility payments that um, become an assessment could now become a payable event, right? That's what you look for on a reverse mortgage. When is my 
payable event or my trigger event, and now delinquent utility bills are going to fall into that bucket. And that's a big game changer, I think, for the product. It's also going to move it into the mutual mortgage insurance fund, which, of course, changes the way the product gets looked at. So um, some big things in there for those of you who do HECMs. Make sure you go read that proposed rule and get your comments out there. Um, there is another one last bill, House Bill 528, uh, actually 5282, and this is the one for Comprehensive Consumer Credit Reform Act. We'll be watching that. It hasn't moved much, and as you know, there's a lot of time off in the summer for Congress, so hopefully nothing, <laughs> no big news coming up <laughs> for us. We like it when it's quiet right now. <laughs> so Anyway, um, that's the scoop for today. Dave, on the legislative and proposed rule front. Yes, good job. Appreciate it, Al, so much for all you do and your staff does to stay on top of all of this and bring it to our people, to our attention. Folks, if you want to learn more about MortgageU and Indicom and what they can do for you, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom MortgageU has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. I just encourage you also, if you're trying to look for a good conference speaker, get a hold of Alice Alvey. She is just such. That's how I met Alice, was her speaking at one of the events that Andy and Chuck and I were doing years ago. And, uh, man, what a great friendship, partnership it has been. Encourage you to check out Alice Alvey as a conference speaker or at one of your events. Does a great, amazing job. We've got Sam Garcia on the line, MortgageDaily.com. Good to have you with us, Sam. Are you back in Texas or are you still out on the uh, West Coast? I am back in Texas where it's uh, beautiful today. No more rain. <laughs> it is no more rain. It's gorgeous. Well, let's get into some of the headlines. I love how you compliment what Paul does and some of the other things out there. And so let's run through some of the headlines uh, that you have. There's some overlap, but there's also just a lot of fresh new perspective that you provide. So let's run through it quickly. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, our mortgage market index, which is a reflection of average per user rate locks by open close clients, was down 8% last week. And uh, given that we don't make any adjustments for seasonal variations, and last week included Memorial Day, that was a pretty decent report. Um, I'd expect that this week we'll see uh, an increase due to refinance activity following you know, the big rate drop on Friday as a result of that uh, employment report. And um, you know, Joe had made some comments about uh, uh, Yellen's comments today, saying that you know not to put too much emphasis on this one single report. But the thing was is that the prior month's report was also pretty weak, and in addition, uh, the, the Labor Department numbers were revised down for several months uh, you know, over what was previously reported. So we actually have a little bit of a trend actually starting up. We'll see if that continues. But uh, you know, despite that dismal employment report last week, uh, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicates that the number of non-bank mortgage employees climbed by nearly 3,000 pe- uh, people in April. Uh, and, you know, based on our analysis of the BLS data and as well as uh, origination market share, um, we estimate that total industry-wide employment uh, stood at 
627,000, a little bit over uh, as of April. And, and that total included 262,000 people at banks and an estimated 63,800 at credit unions and then uh, just over 300,000 at non-banks. Um, and along those lines, uh, mortgage jobs, Aquin recently laid off 120 employees across the country. Um, Aquin, in his uh, first quarter earnings report, reported that it had uh, about a little over 1,500 people uh, on average for the first quarter. So it was a you know decent percentage of overall. And at last count, Aquin's worldwide employment exceeded 10,000 people because they have a lot of offshore operations. The Mortgage Bankers Association reported its mortgage credit availability index last week, and that index was down to the lowest level um, since March 2015. Yeah, so that's an indication that mortgage credit has, uh, is tightening and you know, the tightest it's been in over a year. Um, it's been down three months in a row, and they indicated in that report that modest tightening among government loan programs uh, that serve borrowers in high-cost areas was behind uh, much of what was happening uh, as far as the index falling. Um, Freddie, uh, Freddie Mac was behind an increase in uh, agency issuance during May. Fixed-rate mortgage-backed securities issued on behalf of the three agencies uh, was up 5% between April and May, and uh, Freddie itself saw about a 15% jump to $29 billion. Um, Fannie Mae reported its uh, monthly operating statistics, and it said that its 90-day residential delinquency rate fell to 1.40% in April, and that is the lowest delinquency has been over there since June 2008. Uh, another interesting story we put out uh, was that uh, home equity conversion mortgages endorsed by FHA were down 14% in May from April. Reverse Market Insight reported that. And that was the slowest month for HECM volume since uh, August 2014. So we just that was a big dip there. Uh, consumer bankruptcies uh, improved. Uh, there was uh, less than 63,000. Uh, filings uh, made in, in May, according to the American Bankruptcy Institute. And that was the fewest uh, non-commercial filings since February. So a little bit of a dip there. And finally, there was some interest in a story we put out um, about uh, an order, a consent order that the uh, CFPB issued against a, a Beverly Hills loan officer. And maybe uh, Alice will some point, uh, comment on this, but that the regulator accused the originator of working with an escrow company to switch fees from um, some borrowers they were offering uh, no-fee loans to to other borrowers, and uh, so that, that consent order was issued. But um, those are some of the big highlights, and I'm interested to hear uh, your segment later on after this. So um, that's really it. Very good. Thank you so much. Good stuff. It's, I think Heckam, we're talking about the Heckam production and plunging. It's the lowest level since 2014. Based on what Alice was reporting on, I think we're going to continue to see that slide continue. So that's, that's really interesting. So good stuff. I love your website. I think you do a great job, Sam. I'm so honored to have you be a part of it. So check out the website, mortgagedaily.com. Email Sam at Sam Garcia at Sam Garcia at mortgagedaily.com or call him 214-521-1300. Get signed up for his very informative. Lots of great data behind this website, too. Appreciate you being here so much, Sam. Really do. Always a pleasure. Thank you, David. You bet. We've got Jim Ar Jim Jump with Arch Mortgage uh, Insurance, uh, who's pre-recorded a, a comment about the, the RateStar program, innovative RateStar program. Again, I've checked this out, and it actually works, folks. This thing, you know, talk about technology that is new and innovative. It's even better when it works. So let's hear from Jim Jump. Good to have you with us. 
Hi David, thanks for having me on and we're happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. And today I'd like again to talk about RateStar from Arch Mortgage Insurance. RateStar is a revolutionary tool that allows mortgage originators to dynamically price mortgage insurance and match coverage to Archimai's most competitive rates. And that's important because it allows you to compete more effectively, qualify more borrowers, and of course close more loans. That's the power of RateStar. Originators from around the country are letting us know just how quick and easy RateStar is to use. And all you need is your NMLS number, and you can access RateStar anywhere, anytime, using multiple points of entry, including most LOS systems, product and pricing engines, and through our websites at archmi.com and archmicu.com for credit unions. And of course, it's available through our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. RateStar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. You just touch, tap, and go. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive RHMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. And I have to tell you, David, getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you and say thanks. Have a great day, everybody. Yeah, it is simple, and it is powerful. I saw how much money you can save using it. Check it out, folks, at the ArchMI website. Andy Shell, the profit doctor. I tell you, hey, every time I go somewhere, I, I, had, I, I had someone walk up to me and said, we love it when Andy's on, love getting some of the ideas and feedback. And, 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 uh, and they actually were referring to you as the profit doctor. I said, you know, quick question here. What's his real name? <laughs> and that's when you know branding you know branding is working when you would get better known by your nickname than your real name. So this is the Profit Doctor, best known as Andy Shell, a good friend. Well and, thanks, uh, Dave. That's why I have on my business wisdom. card that's why I have on my business card below my name host of the Profit Doctor segment on Lickin' on Lending, because that's how I'm known. <laughs> you, you are know, the, known as Lickin' on Lending, you know, we were we're what, at almost seven years and download eight Downloaded yeah, 8,000 times a week. I mean, that's pretty astounding. It's crazy. Crazy amount of success. Hey, this uh, happened. Dude, yeah, let's go. To, I'm interested in your yeah, comments with, well, yeah, cause you've been following, but so let's get into, um, you've been following Bill um, Isaac for a long, long time, and you're well aware of his background, so I know you're excited to participate in that, but there's a lot of things that you're working on and focusing on, so let's get those out for our listeners. Well, two things. First, Dave, quick housekeeping. Our technology webinar through the Mortgage Bankers Association is coming up in two weeks. And this is a really important webinar because we're gonna we're gonna talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of technology. You know, when it works, why it works, and how to make certain your technology works for you and not against you. So we're gonna teach about how to buy a technology provider, how to assess a technology provider, how to how to be confident that what you end up getting actually makes your business better and not worse, which is often the case. You know, just a second ago, well, maybe 30 seconds ago, you said, talking about the ArchMI pricing tool, that it's a technology that really works. And what's funny about that is that's a common perspective. People assume that technology is like a light switch. You just buy it and it works. And it's not. There's a lot that goes behind the scene to make technology work. And we're even surprised sometimes when it does work. So we're going to have this webinar. You can still sign up. Go to mba.org. Go to education and then webinars. That's starting in two weeks. So now, Dave, real quick, my profit doctor segment, because I absolutely want to get to the segment with Bill Isaac. Um, So I'm going to keep this short because – uh, you know, I've, I've known of Bill Isaac forever. He's he's a legend in the commercial 
banking circles. And I actually probably first heard him in the early 80s when I was with a commercial bank in Dallas and uh, his participation in what we refer to as a DIDC, the Depository Institution Deregulation Committee, is legendary. And I won't get into the details of why at this point. I'll leave that for Bill if he wants to talk about it. But, okay, today's June the 6th, and what do we know? What do we know about June the 6th? It's after month end, so what should we have on our desk right now today? Financial. We should know our, our financials. We should have our financials on our desk, and not just our financials, but we should know the profit we made on each loan for each originator. Yes. So we can look right now, look at our top originator's production, look how much money we made per loan, from uh, each branch, each product, each loan type. I mean, there's so much data that we need to look at. So if right now today you don't have that on your desk and you don't have the ability to understand your profit per loan, then give your, CP, give your CPA a call and get a system installed. Give us a call. We can help. And, you know, the funny thing about this is Bill Isaac is on the phone, right, on the podcast right now listening, and, and he must be thinking, you mean companies don't know their profit per loan? And, the, the, you know, the, the, sad, the sad reality is not all independent mortgage bankers are as financially advanced as the commercial bank counterparts. But we're working hard to get the mortgage bankers up to speed so they do have all of the robust internal financial tracking metrics so that we really can run our business as we should, knowing our profit per loan. So there you go, Dave. There's a bit of a of a commercial, but that's my update. Good, but I'm going to just add one thing to your commercial, though, that if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you right now that uh, it's good to talk to your accountant, all for that, but there are some limitations. If they're your audit firm, there's some limitations on what they can do to advise you. And if you are needing advice, deep detail, deep dives, Andy Shell, the profit doctor, is the guy you need to have in your house working with you. So I encourage you, Andy at mbs-team.com. That's where you can check it out or go to the website, mbs-team.com. Andy, good to have you here with us. Thanks, Dave. Each week we we cover the KPI from Motivity. I love this. A lot of comments come in on this. They said they really enjoy this segment. So we got John Maynell who pre-recorded a comment. So let's get over there. Today we're talking about app to funded loan cycle time. John Maynell. Hello, thanks very much, David. Always good to be here. And this week's key performance indicator is application to funded cycle time. Uh, since the arrival of TRID, cycle time measurements have obviously come to the forefront, everything from looking at the entire application to funded cycle uh, down to sub-cycles or cycle time between milestones. Everyone wants to compress cycle time, and the beauty of this type of strategic KPI is that it can be tied to operational KPIs that track the tasks or processes within the cycle that contribute to how long or short that cycle is. So operational KPIs can be thought of as the cause, and strategic KPIs are the effect. Uh, and balancing and monitoring these key measurements really can drive performance, and this demonstrates again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, David, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. I appreciate that very much. Check out what their solution is, the Motivity's real-time mortgage business intelligence solution. Check it out at MotivitySolutions.com or call them at 303-721-9000. Folks, it is a real honor to welcome to our podcast Bill Isaac. Now, if you go to the website, you can go to his website, and it's WilliamIsaac.com. 
And I just realized I better turn on his mic so he can join in on the discussion here in a minute. But um, Bill's website is, uh, again, williamisaac.com. I encourage you to head out there, as you see right here. On there. It's not showing him disrespect by using a name. He uses a, his first name, Bill, as uh, the William, Billy versus William on his website. So I'm for those who are very formal, say it's William. Well, he goes by Bill, and he is a great individual that I am so thrilled to get to know and listen to. The amount of wisdom this man has, the experiences he has. He has had an unparalleled career in the financial industry and public service spanning 50 years. He's a little bit older than I am, and he's out there, so it's fun to hear him say, good to see you, youngster, and that. And so he said, I'm just a pup, so I'm glad to hear that. And 65, turning 66 in August, it's so nice to hear someone say, I'm still young in the industry. He served as the chairman of the FDIC during the crisis of 1980. He published a book, Senseless Panic, that has received a lot of attention. If you go to his website, you'll see his TV interviews. Um, uh, that he's been on numerous times, the media coverage, and he continue, this is not only just a website, but it's a blog post. So he's putting up very important information that he wants you to share. I listened to him speak at the American Bankers Association Real Estate Lending Conference, and he was just as compelling. He held everyone. There wasn't one person that left the room, and it was just really good content, and I'm honored to have him here. So, Mr. Isaac, it's good to have you here, sir. <laughs> it's good to be here. I've been enjoying the show. Oh, good. Um, well, it's, uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm sitting. I'm actually sitting in Florida right now, and, it, and we have some sort of a tropical depression coming through, and so it's it's very overcast and rainy. Well, we had it in here, as you know, just a, a few days ago or a, few, a short time ago, and so you get to enjoy what we've been uh, swimming through here. But we've got a gorgeous day in Central Texas, but normally it's just a flip-flop. You've got gorgeous weather out there. But I really you know, talk about cloudy weather. You talk about what you have seen in the financial services over your 50-year career. And the, first of all, let's do get our listeners familiar with Andy Shell has been tracking you for decades and uh, but uh, some of our listeners may not be aware of you so let's talk just give a real brief background of how you from the time out of college you have a law degree you have a background let's talk about that and how you got to the point or chairman of the FDIC quite a prestigious position <laughs> well I I, I uh, am from Bryan Ohio it's a small town in northwest Ohio uh, not too many people probably have heard of it but probably have some of its products such as Etch a Sketch and uh, and uh, Spangler Candy Company with the dumb dumb suckers. Anyway, that's where I came from. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, for undergraduate, and I went to the Ohio State University for law school. My first position in the real world was with Folland Lardner uh, Law Firm in Milwaukee. It's one of the largest firms in the country today. Probably, it's certainly in the top ten. Uh, in terms of size in, in uh, the U.S. today. Uh, that was my first position, and that's where I got introduced to banking. I wanted to be a labor lawyer, and they asked me to be a banking lawyer, so I did. Uh, and then after being there five years, I left, and I went to First Kentucky National Corporation, the largest banking company in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where I was vice president, general counsel, and secretary. And it was from there that I was appointed to the FDIC board by Jimmy Carter uh, four years later. So I was uh, 33 when he appointed me. I was 34 by the time I took office. And uh, I was named to the three-member 
Uh, it was three members at the time. It's five members now, three-member FDIC board. It was bipartisan. And so I was appointed to the Republican seat on the FDIC board. Uh, and I was named chairman by Ronald Reagan when he was elected in 1981. Uh, and I served until the end of 1985. So altogether I was on the board about eight years under two different presidents. And the 1980s, as you, as you, as everybody I think knows, was a very, very difficult, turbulent time um, in in the uh, financial world, in particular. But we were hit with uh, very severe economic conditions, conditions that 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 put what happened in 2008, 2009, um, to um, in, to put it in perspective. This was far worse. What, what happened in the 1980s was far worse and had right. far more potential to do harm than anything that happened in 2008, 2009. Not very many people realize that today, but these were very, very severe conditions in 2000, in, in the 1980s, uh, and uh, we almost lost control of the system, but we didn't. And uh, it's very important to know that. So I'll stop there what and let you. You know, that's good. I'm not, I'm, I want to get Andy... I want to get Andy Shell on here because he lived through some of that with you and some of that. But if you could comment about that crisis, Andy, and then relate to what our most recent crisis, then we're going to get Joe and Alice are going to get you involved here just shortly. But I want to get into that perspective and putting it in perspective from then to the day. Andy? Well, just real quick, Dave, thanks for, for letting me join in. Well, I was in the, I was in a depository in, in the Dallas area throughout the 80s. And in, in Texas specifically, during that time, if you think about Texas as having maybe five major metropolitan areas and another like Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and then probably another 50 cities that are of some some size on the map, it's more than just a little bitty dot, there were 274 depositories off the top of my head that failed during that time frame in Texas. So there were places where there was by a the gas way, station, a bank, way, a bank, and a bank. By the way, including... Eight, uh, nine out of the ten largest Texas banks failed. Yeah, that's the inner first. Yeah, First Republic. Um, uh, exactly, Bill. So there would be a bank and a and on a, each in a corner, a, a bank, a bank, a bank, and a gas station. And by the end of the 80s, it was a gas station, gas station, gas station, gas station, because every single bank, every single drive-in branch uh, failed. It was it was phenomenal. If you drove through downtown Dallas, where there used to be these big, big, tall buildings, 50, 70-story buildings that were bank buildings. By the end, there was just the one that was North Carolina National Bank, became Nations Bank, became Bank of America. But it, it's hard to look back, and, and you know, as I, as I think about it now, it's just it was unsettling, it was unnerving, it was catastrophic. You didn't know how deep the hole was. Examiners would come in and look at a bank's condition and think it was going to be you know, X amount of loss, and, and a year later it was ten times that. The real estate crash that hit and the impact it had on the industry was just unfathomable and, like Bill said, substantially worse than what we just endured. So, Bill, it's you want to comment on that, that more? Well, yeah, I, it's hard I, to imagine it's that, worse than that, than what we went through. I, I, I think that, that, that – go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I think that, that what's what's important to know is, first of all, that we had a severe inflation problem in the 1970s. And so when Paul Volcker became chairman of the Fed in, in 1978, 
with the instructions from Jimmy Carter, we've got to get rid of inflation. It was out of control. Uh, we were sort of like a third world country in terms of what was happening with inflation. And so Paul Volcker came in and raised the prime rate from somewhere around 7 or 8% to 21.5%. And that, that seems unfathomable. Uh, here we're, we, you know, we're, we've got prime rate at what today, three or two? I mean, it's, a, it's a very, very low. And throughout most of my lifetime, it was somewhere around this five or six percent range. Paul Volcker raised the prime interest rate to 21.5 percent, and it stayed there until we broke the back of inflation. That caused a depression, a literal depression, in the in the agricultural sector. That the bottom dropped out. Uh, completely in agriculture. We had a, um, a collapse of the energy sector. And it's so severe that the FDIC became the largest owner of oil rigs in the world. Wow. From taking, uh, taking them over from failed banks that had financed them. Um, and then we had a collapse in the real estate sector. Mm-hmm. And finally, and most well, and, and of course, the SNL industry went down with that. The, the entire SNL industry was basically wiped out. And then, on top of all that, our major money center banks, the banks in New York and Chicago and so forth, they were loaded completely to the gills with loans to lesser developed countries. They made a lot of third world loans. And those loans were all at risk. Uh, our biggest, one of our biggest fears, despite all these other challenges, one of our biggest fears was that the third world countries, Brazil, Argentina, and so forth, would renounce their debts, in which case all of our money center banks, we would be forced to nationalize them. They couldn't survive on their own if that happened. And so we had a standby plan in place to nationalize our major banks in the U.S. if need be. That's how severe the problems were. And altogether, in the 1980s, we had approximately 3,000 banks and SNLs fail, including many of the largest in the country. We've mentioned nine out of the ten largest banks in Texas. Seattle First, the largest bank in the Northwest. Uh, Southeast Bank Corp., the largest bank in the Southeast. Bank of New England, the largest bank in the Northeast. Continental Illinois, the sixth largest bank in the country. All of these major institutions throughout the country failed. Um, and and that's what we were facing during that period. It was a sev- far more severe crisis than we were faced with in 2007, 2008, 2009. Far more severe. I'd like to think it was I think handled inter- a lot better. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say, think I'd it was like handled get... a lot better, and, and, and that's why I wrote the book, Senseless Panic. It was about how poorly the crisis was handled in 2008, 2009, how we could have done so think... much better. Why is it that the current pain is always more than the historical pain? I, I think we put more credence in it, but it's really interesting to put that in perspective. And it wasn't until you and I were talking that really, and when I heard you speak, that really brought that to the forefront. And so then you look at the mistakes that were – there were mistakes made in the 80s financial crisis, but far less than what were made in this most recent crisis. That's what prompted you to re- read the book. Bring us forward to that book. There's so much we, – we could do all several programs just on the banking crisis – 
of the 80s and what we all went through. And uh, I was in Seattle. I watched Seattle first fail. I looked at that and what kind of panic. But let's go to why you wrote the book and the premise of that book. And it's a, one of those books that I really encourage our listeners to pick up and read. Senseless Panic, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to the website and order it. But give us the backdrop of that and where, where that book has taken you and what you're doing now today. Well, I, I had moved on with my life following leaving the FDIC. I started my own, my own firm to consult with financial institutions and try to help them deal better with their, their issues and problems. Uh, and, and I've been doing that uh, since then. And, and I have commented on, on the public policy issues over the years, but I was relatively quiet until I watched the crisis in 2008 develop and, and, and get out of control. And, and they, the government proposed a terrible piece of legislation called TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program. And they, they, they proposed to pass that law, and what that law would have done was taken $700 billion of our money and give it to the largest banks in the United States and, and, and elsewhere. We, the money could, could also go to foreign banks to try to buy from them their troubled assets, the name of the program, Troubled Asset Relief Program. And there was no way that program was going to be anything but a waste of taxpayer money, our money, it was not going to fix the banking system. You can't fix a, a $15 trillion system by buying $700 billion of bad loans. And then what would you do with them? What would the government do with $700 billion of bad loans other than let them lie in a warehouse floor somewhere collecting dust and losing money? Uh, it was not a fix. I, I argued against it. I wrote a piece that appeared in the Washington Post at the same time Congress was, was, it, was considering TARP. And, I, and the title of the article was, There's a Better Way Than TARP. And so I explained in the article what I thought were better solutions than throwing away $700 billion of taxpayer money. And my, it, it was published on a Saturday in September of 2008, and my phone began to ring off the hook with members <laughs> of Congress calling me saying, you've got to come to Washington and help us. Uh, I rejected it and rejected it, and finally I, I said to one member of Congress, I, I will, uh, I'll talk to my wife when she gets home, and I'll see what she says, because I planned a family weekend. <clears throat> so anyway, she came home, and I, I told her what was going on. She said, you have to go. I said, why? She said, because you care. You care about the country. You care about the banking system. So go and see if you can help fix it. And I did, and I spent a week in, in Washington and and met with hundreds of members of Congress. I couldn't believe the the reception I got. It was so it was so good. And the first vote they took on the TARP legislation in the House was defeated. Um, and I was so thrilled that they turned down that terrible legislation. Of course, it did ultimately pass, and uh, and 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 it didn't do anything to fix the, the system. Uh, the Dow, when they when they passed that legislation, the Dow was at 10,800. And over the next few months, after after TARP was passed, over the next few months, uh, the Dow fell to a little over 6,000, from from almost 11,000 down to about 6,000. So it, it clearly did not resolve the problems, did not resolve the crisis, um, and 
you know, we've we've sort of bumbled our way since then. We haven't fixed it, and that's what caused me to write the book, I, uh, Senseless Panic. This was a totally senseless panic. The crisis was mishandled. Uh, the solution to the crisis was mishandled, and the Dodd-Frank law that was passed um, following the crisis was mishandled, a terrible law. And, and we, in our economy and our country have been struggling since, and we've got to find a way out of this. And that's basically how I spend a lot of my time now, trying to, trying to talk to people about how we fix what's wrong with our country. I appreciate your passion, and I appreciate your purpose, and I'm grateful that you are still engaged in the process of trying to get a voice out there. One of the things in our when we talked pre- previous to the broadcast, you ta- commented about Senator Dodd, and I had the privilege of talking to him, of all places, at the Dulles Airport while waiting in line for our flights. We spent quite a bit of time visiting, and you shared shed some light on something that was very interesting I'd like to have you share with our radio audience. What Dodd-Frank, what the the dot part of the dot frank was originally proposed was actually something that was pretty decent so if you could or it was sensible i don't know if it's decent what, what's the, how would you characterize it and you share that story with our audience well senator dodd was was uh, really a, a voice of reason throughout much of this and and i have had a great deal of admiration he proposed the dodd bill and the dodd what the dodd bill would have done which, which was exactly what needed to be done. Our regulatory system was broken. It remains broken. It is not a good regulatory system. There have been three major banking crises in my, in my career, the 1972 to 1975. We had a, a, a terrible real estate crisis fed by the real estate investment trusts that the banks founded all over the country. And then you had the 1980s. By the, by the way, in the, that 1970s crisis, virtually every significant bank in the country was on the edge uh, of failing. Uh, during the 1980s, of course, I've described what, what went on then when we had some 3,000 banks and thrifts fail. Um, and, and then, of course, 2008, 2009. So we've had three major banking crises in this country during my career, my working career. And so wow. it, it, leads you to, it leads you to ask, what's wrong? Why do these things keep happening every 10 years or so? Why do we have one financial crisis after another? And a significant part of it is, is we are not doing a good job of regulating the banking industry. And, and so what Dodd proposed was to create a new independent banking agency that would take the place of the Fed and the controller of the currency that are currently regulating banks. He also would have merged the FDIC into that banking commission. It would have been a five-member bipartisan board that would be independent of the Treasury and the Fed, uh, independent of the Congress, and would have given the banking industry and financial industry the kind of regulation it needs. Uh, and, And that that was not considered uh, by the by the Congress, and and it was not considered by the Bush administration or the or the Obama administration, and so finally, hmm. Senator Dodd gave up. He was leaving office, and he joined with with Representative Barney Frank, who had who was supporting the administration's bill, the Obama administration's bill, and that was to come up with this Dodd Frank law, which was which was. Um, uh, basically 
a useless law and harmful in the sense that it, it, it gave people the feeling that we, the sense that we changed things when we hadn't. We have not changed a badly broken regulatory system and structure that needs to be fixed. And Senator Dodd decided he was leaving office, so he got on board with the Dodd-Frank legislation. Uh, but his law would have been a far better fix to what was wrong in our country than, than, than the Dodd-Frank law will ever be. Uh, Alice Alvey reports on this all the time, so I'm going to have Alice jump in, and then I'm going to go over to you, Joe. And uh, we're going to run slightly longer than our normal program here because this is just so critical, especially the lessons we've learned. Alice, have you jump in with a couple of questions here. Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks, Bill. I'm just fascinated. I can't take notes uh, quickly enough, you know, because I, I actually started as a processor in the early 80s, so I do remember that 21.5% interest rate and everybody being happy when they got an arm at 11%. Um, so, um, <laughs> but my, <laughs> my question then goes back to what you were just talking about, you know, and how do we fix what, what's wrong? So we're, we're already here. Um, I think a lot of people would agree with you that this, you know, bill, the Dodd-Frank ended up being just a lot of regulation to make us all do stuff, but didn't really fundamentally get at the core of the problem. So what are some of the things that we should be doing next? Well, if I if I were the president or if I were advising the president, um, I would say... Could you start say... running now? We're looking for somebody. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little, little late for that. <laughs> but but uh, I, I think that I think that um, uh, what what one thing that I would advise the new president to do is to put together new legislation that really makes sense, not 2,500 pages long. By the way, the Dodd Frank Law is 2,500 pages long. And it spawned at least 25,000 pages of new regulations, and it doesn't really fix anything. Um, it's just it's just gobbledygook. It really is. And and uh, so I think what I would advise the new president is I would come up with a reform law that focuses primarily on regulatory reform, so that we get regulation of, of banking institutions and financial institutions. We get that right, and then. Uh, and, and it needs to be independent, as as as, uh, as uh, Senator Dodd suggested. It needs to be an independent of politics. Uh, we need to get that right. And then, um, once regu- regulators are doing their job properly, which they already they already had all the authority they needed to do everything that should have been done, but they didn't do it. So once we get once we get the regulatory system right. Um, there's not much else that needs to be done. We might need a law here or there to to deal with some issue, but we basically need to get the the regulatory system right. So if I were advising the new president, I'd say let's revive Senator Dodd's law and let's put that on the table with perhaps some other reforms here and there. Um, And uh, and then uh, let's repeal Dodd-Frank as that as as that new law passes, we'll we'll repeal the Dodd Frank law, and and let that new regulatory authority start uh, from scratch and do what really needs to be done to get the banking system regulated properly and functioning properly. Uh, so that's what I would do. Um, uh, it's 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 
pretty simple, really. We need to do what we know how to do. We know how to regulate banks properly. We just haven't done it because we haven't had the political will to do it, and that is partly and importantly a, a product of not having the proper structure for our regulatory agencies and the proper independence. Well, I tell you, I think that makes sense. Let's go over to Joe Farr. Joe? Yeah, uh, Bill, you're describing an independent agency that sounds very similar to what the CFPB is right now. And, and you know, that's being met with a lot of resistance uh, given how independent it is. Um, what do you think is going to happen there, and what, what would you recommend? Would you recommend any changes in that regard? By the CFPB, you mean the Consumer Financial Financial Protection uh, Bureau, yeah, Protection Bureau, and yeah. and I am not somebody who is uh, strongly opposed to that agency. I'm not opposed to it at all. Um, I I I mean that's heresy among. Bankers, <laughs> yeah. I think almost all bankers would tell you they hate that agency. Um, but but well, I see people I, hang up on the podcast right now. <laughs> well, stay, stay stay on the podcast long enough to hear me out, and then and then and then you'll make up your mind. Uh, but I I don't think the problem was creating a new agency to be focused on consumer compliance. That was already going on among the banking agencies, but it was sort of a conflict for them to. To have to, you know, are you supposed to protect the banks and have the banking system working right, or are you supposed to be taking care of consumers? And it was, it was very confusing and difficult for bank regulators to sort that out. And I didn't have a problem with putting that in, a, in an independent agency and make it clear what the banking agency should be concerned about. Now, one of the things we did wrong is we kept the banking agencies involved in this while we created a new agency to be involved in it. See, I, I think one mistake we made is we should have taken the banking agencies out of consumer compliance and and completely instead of having them do it and the CFPB do it. Uh, secondly, I believe the CFPB is not structured properly. It, it's, it's, it has, it's headed by a single individual, not a, not a board, um, I believe it should have been a board of directors of the CFPB. I believe it should have been a bipartisan board, not a single individual appointed by a president from a particular party. I think it should have been a bipartisan board. I think it should have been independent, but it should have gotten its funding from Congress, not from the Federal Reserve. So a lot of things were wrong with the structure of the CFPB and how they went about it, and those are easily fixed. Um, but having the banking agencies focus their attention or the new banking commission focusing its attention on banking and making sure that's going right, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's, a, 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 that's a good way to go. And having a new CFPB focused on whatever the consumer issues are and have that be their mission, I think that's a good way to go. Um, and and I, don't ha- I don't have a problem with it. Uh, uh, so I, I think that that it could have worked. I think neither one of them is structured properly, and uh, it's all in the structure. If you don't get the structure right, if you don't get the governance right, you're not going to get anything right, and that's where we are. 
Boy, I tell you, there's a lot of wisdom there, a lot of experience, and we need to get this voice inside of the next campaign or whoever's going to be in the White House. So, yeah, it's too late for you to run, but we definitely can get your voice inserted in there. We'll have to do that. Um, got some bunch of ideas that are running through my mind of what we can do to get your wisdom and experience brought to everyone's attention. But I, first of all, what I want everyone to do is go out and download the book Senseless Panic. Read it. Pay attention to it. Forward it on to one of your uh, local legislators that are going to D.C. and that are in D.C. representing you. I think this wisdom needs to be there. Bill is available to talk at conferences, to speak at your company, to come on and get. We need his voice out there for so many reasons that you've already heard here. We're out of time. We're actually beyond out of time. We went over a little bit, but it was well worth it to have you here with us, Bill. I want to say thank you. I also want to say thank you to Alice, Andy, Joe, uh, participating in the discussion here. Appreciate you. Wish you all the best for in the future, and we want to make sure we're going to do what we can to get your voice out there and heard and hopefully sitting at the table for to fix with wisdom in this time, correctly fix the issues that are still before us. Thank you so well, th- much thank for being you. a part of it. And wish- Really great having thank, you. Thank, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate uh, talking with uh, all of you and, and your listeners. Yeah, it's really been a, a real been an honor. Next week, folks, we've got Mitch Kiner coming on along with his sons. Uh, the, you know, you heard that old show, Father and Sons. Well, that's what we've got going on. Mitch Kiner and his three boys are going to be coming on and be talking. It's just before the Father's Day, so I thought it'd be a way to honor uh, or talk about Father's Day, but also talk about leadership, leadership in the home, leadership as fathers, leadership within the industry. His boys have gone on and continued to follow Mitch's legacy and providing wisdom and out there. So we're really honored to have Mitch Kiner joining us next week on the podcast along with his the father and son <laughs> that whole program i think it was ed mcmurray we had andy would know who it was that did that ed mcmurray i think it was was it not andy show but anyway yeah um, that's right it was great my wife three sons ed yeah, McMurray. Was, yeah yeah I, I i remember that program like yesterday and uh so we're gonna have mitch and his sons on next week in advance of father's day Good to have you with us. Appreciate you being a part of the podcast. The most important thing you can do is tell others about the podcast so that people know what we're doing, and this is a way of getting information out. Anyone who comes in and has been a part of this podcast gets cooked on it. They go, it's really helpful, and we appreciate your support. The best way you can support us is tell others about it. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to having you back where we will talk to father and son, Mitch Kiter, and his three sons. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week, everybody. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin, of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week, and thank you for listening. 